0: Part of the Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church, you can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org, or by subscribing to our podcast. you have your Bibles this morning, open to John chapter eight. John chapter eight. We're going to talk about the truth that sets you free. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. We're going to see uh, what does that really mean in the context of biblical. Uh, the biblical context of what does it really mean to have a freedom there that really sets you free. We're in the midst of a study uh, about discerning truth in a world that's filled with deception. And I think that uh, we would all agree that there's times that even as believers, it's easy to get deceived, uh, to be able to see something that appears to have truth. And yet once we get into it, maybe we believe that lie, and then we find out as, as Satan would kind of pull that rug out from underneath us that it really wasn't truth. And so what we do over the next couple of weeks is very, very important as we get into God's word and we go to his truth, this foundational truth, and we begin to discover ways that we can truly be people of the word, of truth. And worship in spirit and truth, just as, as we've been called to do. Last week, uh, a quick review, in case you were not here, because it's kind of the foundation. It's kind of the, the first kind of rung there on this ladder of how to discern truth and how to truly have truth in our lives in a world of deception. But we looked at God's word. And we saw two things that uh, Paul was talking to Timothy that he was uh, telling us uh, about God's word. And he said, number one, he said, God's word is intimate. Remember Second Timothy 3.16, he said that the spoken word of God breathed out by God is how uh, the ESV uh, describes it, that, that God breathed out this word. Yes, Paul wrote it down. John's the one that wrote it down. Others wrote it down. And they, God used their personalities to have that reflection. And yet everything that we read from Genesis to Revelation is God's word. It is truly his truth. And so we began to see the intimacy of this word But we also begin to say that God's word, even though it's very intimate and he's spoken it in such a personal way, it does have purpose and intentions for our lives. And that when we read God's word, there's four things that we find there in 2 Timothy 3.16 that that God's word is to do to us. And, And I want to give you some word pictures this morning that kind of go along with this verse. About how all scripture is inspired by God, it's breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, that one thing, you could memorize that, but those four things, I really want you to get those kind of ground in your mind so that as you have a daily devotion, as you would read God's word, as you would come in here and we would study God's word together, however you would entertain God's word and and kind of have that time with God's word, these four things are happening. Maybe not all together and not in isolation of one another, but these are the four things that are happening. First of all, he says that teaching and the word picture that I want to give you here, remember we said that teaching, that word that's used in the Greek in other places of the, of the Bible, is actually interpreted doctrine. And so this is that foundational truth. And so get this word of teaching that this is going to be the truth that we really build all of our doctrines and all the different things on, such as that God is holy, that he is just that uh, salvation by grace alone where did we come up with those things did just a lot of smart guys kind of sit in a circle and decide that this is truth or not no it's from god's word and so the first thing is we open up god's word from genesis to revelation we see that this is foundational doctrinal truth some of you are going to like doctrine better than others other people really like practical things okay get past all the doctrine and just give me something practical and so God, first and foremost, he, he says, okay, I'm going to give you a word that's teaching. The second thing that he says there, that God's word, the Bible, gives us reproof. Now, usually when somebody you know, is, tells you that something is wrong, uh, we don't like that. But out of the mercy and the grace of God, this word reproof means God's light of truth turns on uh, in, in the midst of our darkness. If we read the Bible theologically, it tells us that every one of us uses these words like depraved, that we were in darkness, that because we were born in Adam rather than born in Christ to begin with, that there's this darkness about us. And so that's why sometimes we don't even want to believe the truth. And so Paul is telling Timothy, this is good for teaching, for doctrinal, foundational truth, but he said also for reproof. There's going to be times that you and I are going to be reading God's word and we just want, you know, God to, to say, okay, something nice and smiley. And, and yet we're going to be kind of opening up, and all of a sudden there's going to be some reproof. And there's going to be some darkness in our lives, some sin that maybe that we've let in. And God uses that word to turn on the light and, and says, okay, uh, for, for example, again, forgiveness. Because I think that's one that we can all relate to. You know, we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. And yet maybe that week it's really been kind of challenging. And husband, wife, that whole kind of thing's going on, and you're going, you know, he has not asked me forgiveness. He has not said that he's sorry. And so you're kind of holding on to that a little bit. And uh, you read God's word, forgive as you've been forgiven. And all of a sudden, it wasn't the husband that came in and said, will you forgive me? All of a sudden, God's word says, okay, I command you, forgive your husband. Forgive your spouse. Forgive your children. Forgive your parents. Forgive this one that you have animosity toward because God turned his light in, on in our darkness. The third part is correction. Now this is, a, uh, this is the part, remember we said that the word that's used there in the original language, uh, if something fell over, a lamp fell over, this is the word that they would use when they went over there and put it back upright. See, the good thing about God, he will bring reproof to our lives. He'll, He'll bring that, that word that says, okay, Bradley, this is wrong. But he doesn't leave us in that state. By the grace and the mercy of God, he, he gives us actually words of correction. And so he doesn't say, okay, look, you're upside down. man, mean, you, you've got this totally wrong. He actually tells us what is right, and he flips us over. He puts us in the right position. The fourth thing that we see in God's word is training in righteousness. And this is where, you know, God says, okay, I don't want you to go the wrong way. So I'm, from the very beginning, I'm going to show you the right way to go. Can you imagine being a little kid, and maybe you were a little kid, and, and all of a sudden your coach says, okay, I want you to go in there and bunt. And you're a little 9-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old, and you've never bunted in your life. And, and you're going, okay, I, I don't even know how to do this. And all of a sudden you get there in the batter's box, and this ball's coming in at 70, 80, 90 miles an hour toward your body. And you're going, okay, I don't even know how to bunt. No, training in righteousness is a good coach who says, okay, before I tell you to go up to the plate and bunt, let me show you how to bunt. Let me show you how to hold the bat. Let me show you how to wait for the ball. Instead of swinging at it, you just kind of wait for the ball and let the ball come to the bat. And some of those basics so that when you are called upon to bunt, you actually know how to bunt. Well, that's what God's word does. It says it does correct those things that we're doing wrong. And it will tell us, you know, uh, bring on to light those things that are in darkness. But there's a lot of God's Word that says, okay, if you want the disciplined life of God, if you want to live in a pure way, here's how you do it. And here's how you love your wife well. Here's how you love your enemy and you pray for them, as Jesus said. Because that's the last thing that's coming to your mind when it comes to an enemy is to pray for them. And so God says, okay, I'm going to train you in righteousness. So those four things, every time that you have a devotion, every time that you have a study like this where we gather together, or you're having a quiet time, whatever it might be, know that God is going to work through his word those four things. Maybe not every one of those in every sitting, but that is what God is doing. But even that is for a purpose. Look what it says in the very next verse. 2 Timothy, you can just look up here because you're probably in John chapter 8, because that's where we're going to go this morning. Look what God said. Here was the end game that he was going for. He said, okay, I've given you my word. It is an intimate word that I've spoken out myself. It is an instructional and intentional word that is going to do these four things. But look at the end game of God's word. Why do we study? Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, you weren't born that way. I wasn't born that way. And even those people that said, you know, Bobby, I have been in the, you know, I was raised in the church. You know, my mama brought me, you know, when I was just a little baby. And so I, I've been taught the right way. Well, the, God's word is that instruction, God's truth that completes us, that, that, that as far as going out and being equipped for his good work. And so God's end game is that he doesn't want you and I to go out there and, and just kind of fail. He doesn't want us to go out there without direction for our lives. And so as we kind of review that from last week, we have this foundation now that God's word, when you hold the word of God in your hand, you're holding the intimate word of God that is given with the intention and the purpose to make you and I equipped. I love how the NIV says it, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He doesn't send you out there, folks, without proper equipping. Now let's go to John chapter 8. As you're turning there, if you haven't found it yet, John chapter 8, that's in the New Testament. This is one of the four Gospels. John wrote this. And the the background of this particular passage, this is probably about six months before Jesus goes to the cross. So it's toward the end of his three-year ministry. And by this time, he's done miracles. By this time, he's done all kinds of different things. And there's people that recognize that Jesus really is different from other preachers. He's different from other religious leaders. And, and yet, there are still a lot that are still trying to figure out who he is. And among those people are the other religious leaders, the Jewish leaders. The, the Jewish leaders, they don't know quite what to do with Jesus. There's a part of them that going, okay, obviously he's doing miracles. He's actually brought something back to life. He, he, uh, if you go back a couple chapters, he's fed 5,000 plus people from just one little supper. I mean, they could not deny the truth of what Christ did. And yet, at the same time, they did not like the claim that he said that he was God's own son, that they thought that that was the biggest lie ever. And so they were kind of in this quandary. You know, we know that he's different, and yet, can we really you know, affirm in our own hearts and our own minds that he is who he says that he is? And, and John chapter 8 is kind of this... Uh, Chapter where it begins with the woman caught in adultery, and you know they're all ready to stone her, and Jesus says, if you if you've ever sinned, you know, go ahead, you know if you haven't sinned, go ahead and throw a stone, and they all have to drop the stones and walk away. And Jesus makes some claims in John chapter eight about who he is. So, so they're still trying to figure that. Out. And in verse twelve, he says, I am the light of the world. Verse eighteen, he clarifies even that much where He says, I am the one who bears witness to myself. And remember in Jewish law, they had to have two witnesses. And, and so he said, not only do I give witness of myself, because they asked, well, where's your other witness? And he said, my Father in heaven who sent me is the other witness. And so Jesus has an answer for everything that they come up with. And, and the uh, whole uh, uh, chapter is going along, and we come to verse 30. And verse 30 really looks... Like a breakthrough. It looks like a breakthrough for the ministry of Jesus Christ because he's talking to these Jewish people, a lot of them Jewish leaders, and look what it says in verse 30. As he was saying these things, what happened? Many believed him. Now you would see that and go, man, this is a breakthrough for this ministry. You know, he's been talking to them. They've been kind of bullheaded. They've been kind of resistant. They've been even rebellious against who Jesus was. And then we get to verse 30 and it says, and as he's talking, there are many that believe him. The many there are Jewish leaders and people from this Jewish background. But before you think that this is just a dynamic breakthrough, we have to read the rest of the story. Because what happens afterwards is that we find out that this belief that they had was kind of a surface belief. You know, it's kind of one of those that they affirmed a lot of things about Jesus, but it wasn't really salvation belief. I I would imagine this morning that if we took a poll, and we just polled everybody here and maybe even a lot of people, if we went down to Publix this morning and just took a poll there on a Sunday morning, do you believe in Jesus? What percentage do you think would respond in an affirming yes way? Somebody help me out. 95, 80? I mean, would you at least put it in the high 80s, if, if not 90s? I mean, we are in the South. Remember, okay, so we're, here, we're in the South. You know, there's a lot of people saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Now, not trying to be critical and not trying to be judgmental, how many of the, would you believe that all of those that gave the affirming answer that they believe in Jesus are saved Christians? I guess we got a lot of people kind of shaking their head now. And, and so is there a belief That is kind of believing some facts or even the existence of, but not salvation belief. That is, they haven't put their hope and their trust that Christ was the one sent from God to die in their place for their sins. There's a difference here. And that's the difference that's happening in John chapter 8. And it's not all that different from what happened just a a while back in John chapter 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000 plus. There was a whole bunch of people that followed. But you know what happened when Jesus didn't provide the next meal for them? It says that they left. And he said, you know, man, as far as, you know, as long as I'm putting food in your tummy, you're right there with us. But the minute that I don't feed you, you know, physical food, you you abandon me. You, You leave. And so, folks, there's belief and then there's saving belief. There's two different beliefs. And that's what was going on here. Because as we begin to look in that, and that's why we need discernment, this whole series about how do we develop a discernment that knows truth in the midst of things that can be very confusing to us. Have you ever heard of pyrite? Okay. What's the more common name of that? Fool's gold. Okay. And, And the thing that makes fool's gold so fooling to people is that in the outward appearance, it looks like gold. It's actually found in a lot of places that you would find gold and get this. It even, most of the time, contains a little trace of gold. There, there's oftentimes times that you'll have some fool's gold and there'll be a little trace of gold in there. And, and, and you know, if you're sitting there and you're trying to find a gold mine, you need discernment. Because you could work really long and really hard digging up all this stuff and bring all these rocks in there and say, okay, I'm a rich man, and find out, no, you're a fool. Because this is not really worth anything. And that discernment is needed. And folks, that's the discernment that God wants you and I to have in this world. Our kids are being raised in a world where the society and the culture will say there is no absolute truth. And, And God's word says just the opposite. God's Word says there are definitive and definite things that are always true. There's things that you can bank on, no matter what the culture would say, no matter what the Paul would say. God in His Word would say, okay, these things you can count on. These are to be an anchor for your soul. And so how are you and I going to discern in this world of gold and fool's gold what is real? And how are you going to teach your children to do that? Remember last week what Paul said to Timothy as he was, you know, Paul doesn't know if he's going to live the next week. And he says, you know, just remain in the things that you've learned. And, And I threw that out there as kind of a challenge for every parent and every grandparent that we would raise our children in the truth so that one day, you know, on their college day, on their first day of their job, on their wedding day, that we could say to our children, remain in the truth that you have learned. Wouldn't that be a great blessing? Well, how do we do that? How do we teach ourselves and how do we teach our children and grandchildren to separate gold, truth, from fool's gold? We begin to look in there, and that's really what discernment is. Have you ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? He's kind of, you know, he's kind of a, the preacher of preachers, and he has a thousand quotes. He's probably been more quoted than any other Baptist preacher. And, and here's I love what he said about discernment. He said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Spurgeon would say, that's pretty easy. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. He's kind of a smart guy, isn't he? That's why I guess he was so famous. That's why people are quoting him all the time. Go, man, that's pretty good, Charles. Yeah, it's not right and wrong. I mean, that's kind of easy. But right and almost Right. You know, if you pick up just a piece of granite, you're going, that's not gold. But fool's gold has a little bit of shine to it. You go, man, it looks like gold. And so all of a sudden, you know, how do I know if this is real gold or if this is fool's gold? Discernment is needed in every aspect of life. It's, it's needed in moral law and it's needed in spiritual law. Uh-uh. John chapter 8, let's get back to that. Verse 31, 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Okay, verse 30 said that some had believed. We don't know that it's saving belief, but certainly they've believed some things about Jesus. And so verse 31 says, Jesus said to these Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus says, okay, you say you believe, you say you want to follow me, and he kind of sets up a little bit of a test. Uh, testing is another word of discernment. You know how to test fool's gold from real gold? Uh, to, to simple test, Real gold is very pliable. It's bendable. It's pretty soft. Fool's gold is not It's brittle. It's hard. And so one thing, you just can take a pick to it, and if it's kind of pliable, that may be gold. If it just kind of is really hard and chips away, that's not gold. There's another test that they would often do to see if it's fool's gold or real gold. They would take it and they would just kind of scrape it against something. Real gold will leave a gold streak. If you do that with fool's gold, it's a black streak. And so there's two tests. There's two ways that you can help discern is this real or not. Well, Jesus kind of does that same thing here with these people that want to follow. He says, you believe. Well, let's kind of put it to the test. And he's not coming from an angry vantage point. He's not kind of coming from a, a place where he's going, okay, I, you know, I just want to prove you wrong. There's not a vindictive nature here of Christ. But at the same time, he doesn't want them to continue to falsely believe you know, something that's not going to be helpful to them. So he puts it to the test. And, and notice what he says there. He says, if you believe in me, if you want real truth, here's what you're going to do. You're going to abide in my word. If you do that, you're truly my disciple. What does it mean to abide in his word? Well, if we abide in something, it means that uh, we we basically stay there. Uh, That word abide means to remain. Uh, We even use that word to say that that's where we live. Have you ever said, uh, here's my humble abode? You know, that we're talking about a place that we live. And so Jesus says, if you abide in my word, if you live in my word, if you remain in my word, not just for the day, but you live in this. He said, you show yourselves to truly be my disciples. And so one of the tests that Jesus puts on this belief, whether it's really saving belief, or whether it's just kind of a temporary factual belief, is longevity. He says, okay, not just next week and next month, but are you holding to the truths about me? Now, again, this isn't just all the facts and the Ten Commandments and all this, guys. This is who Christ said that he was. And as long as they were having their bellies filled, they were believers. I mean, can you imagine if you went and all of a sudden you go and you hear this itinerant preacher and he takes this little uh, lunch and everybody has uh, uh, to the point of contentment what they want to eat? I mean, that's a miracle in itself. Have you ever found one crowd that would be satisfied with one meal? I mean, in our house, and we had to have chicken nuggets for this one, and we had to have, you know, this one for that one. You know, everybody, sometimes it looked like four different meals because nobody liked the same thing. I mean, that was the miracle right there, especially if they were Baptists, that he could feed 5,000 plus, and everybody said, man, I I ate to contentment, and nobody needed, you know, something with a little less salt, and hey, you know, I'm on this kind of diet. Everybody ate to fulfillment. As long as they were eating and getting their physical needs filled, they believed. But did they stay with Jesus? The more that he made it a spiritual thing. You know, if you read later on in John chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. He says, you want bread? I gave you some physical bread, but I'm the bread of life. And they said, ah, (laughs) no, we don't want that. Do you have any of that other bread left over? Well, folks, could could we be that same way? I mean, is there a part of us that we want the Christ that meets our needs? But maybe sometimes we're not always just wanting that Christ that has met the ultimate need and and the one that only He can solve, and that is salvation for us, forgiveness for our sins and our offense against God to be made right with a holy God. Only Christ can do that. Well, here's what we need. A, a, A word of caution as I say this, though. When we talk about this discipleship and a believerism, that uh, it is tested by longevity. One thing I do not want you to ever hear from my mouth or ever misunderstand is that somehow we become a Christian or we become a believer because we've acquired all these facts. No, it is by grace and by grace alone. It is by the finished work of Jesus Christ that we are saved. It is not our efforts. It's not us compiling the right facts and getting an affirmation to those facts. He just says, I-, I want you to know that salvation comes by me. But discipleship, to, to show that you're discipleship, he, he says, that's going to be proved out. Do you follow me? Do you-, do you really take my word and really apply it to your life? Do you live in there? Do you abide there? So he puts this test out there. Uh, very much what he would say years later. This same John that wrote the Gospel of John, he lives, a lot of theologians say, into his 90s. There are some that even estimate that John could have been over 100 years old, which would be phenomenal now, but would have been just extra phenomenal back in those days. And in 1 John chapter 2, listen to what he says in verse 4 and 5. It's not going to be up here, so just listen real close. He says, whoever says, I know him, he's talking about Jesus, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. I mean, this is a guy, 90s. He's kind of the grandfather of the church, and yet he kind of comes out with this very black and white statement. He says, if you say that you know Jesus, and yet you don't follow the commandments, he wasn't talking about being perfect. He wasn't talking about, you know, that we would never sin. And he said, but, you know, you don't even give heed to that. You don't even give a a, a desire and a heart to that. He said, you're a liar. And then he goes on and he says, And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. He says, it's kind of like a test. Do you want to know? Are you truly a disciple? He said, just remain in my word. And remain in the truth that I have given you. Well, then he goes on back in John chapter 8 and he says, Okay, abide in my word. But then he goes on and he says, Secondly, that you will know the truth. There's a flow. When we remain in God's truth, he says, you're going to know the truth. And eventually he's going to say that truth is what's going to be setting you free. He said, there's a a purpose of giving you this truth and that's so that you will be able to know the truth. Um, Maybe you've heard somebody say, you know, know the truth and the truth will set you free. In fact, there's some universities, some colleges that actually use that on their little seal. Because they, they're going, okay, education gives you freedom. Is it true that education can give you a, a measure of freedom? Yeah. You, you put a lot of facts in your mind, and you learn a lot of stuff. Maybe it opens up some job opportunities. I mean, there's a certain physical truth among humans that, okay, you get some education and you get some truth, and it will give you some freedom. But that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. It's taken out of context when people use it that way. It's certainly a principle. And yet what Jesus meant is that this is something that is more spiritual in nature. That when we know the truth, that it's actually something that begins to happen in our spirit, in our mind. What was the whole argument going on in John chapter 8? Who Jesus was. And the more that you begin to figure out who Jesus is, that he came to seek and to save those that are lost, that's what he said in one place. He said, Uh, uh, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He made all these statements about himself. He, he keeps on pointing himself to the, being this place of truth. And he's talking there about a spiritual nature much more than just a factual nature. Because I, I can imagine. I, I've met people that could quote more scripture than I ever thought about quoting. And, and yet... I hate to say it this way, but they're as lost as a goose. I, I'm not trying to make fun of them. I'm just, They have a lot of head knowledge. They have a lot of argumentative you know, ability to kind of come back and say, well, what about this, what about that? And, and yet they do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This truth about how you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free is the truth in, in knowing who Christ is. It's not just a truth about knowing all the things that the Bible says. Let's put that to the test. How many commandments did we have back in the Old Testament? The the main one, the first ones? Ten. Okay, ten commandments. And and then the Pharisees and a lot of other people decided to add a whole bunch, over 600 others. But let's just take the 10 ask you a, a question here. Are those ten commandments good commandments? Yes. Okay. It's not a trick question. Okay. I don't know. Where is he going to go with this? Yes. They are good commandments. We are to be obedient to those. Okay. But is your obedience, those commandments, without Christ, does that free you? Or does it actually become almost like a, a weight upon you? Yeah, that's what we see in the New Testament. All the New Testament writers said, man, these commandments, they're good. And they don't make light of these Ten Commandments. But what they say is, without Christ, you and I don't have the ability to live out these Ten Commandments. And so we go through life, you know, the big word right now is, you know, to post pictures of fail. And and that's what our life would be. It would be one big fail when it comes to the Ten Commandments. And God says, okay, that's not freedom. That's not like Christ has come. And so whenever we make Christianity more about morality than we make about Christ, folks, it is a weight. And that's why when the church goes out and and this is what the reputation that the church, and I'm talking about the body of Christ in the world today, we have a reputation of certainly knowing what we're against. And my heart is that cornerstone church and these believers to tell this community what we're for, and that's Jesus Christ. I mean, we're, we're still going to say, okay, yeah, but you know, if you're doing this and this is wrong, you're actually, this is going to be a better way to, to live. I mean, we, we don't think that I'm saying that morality doesn't have its place. But this is about Christ. And, and so when he says, you shall know the truth... And the truth will set you free. He wasn't saying, okay, you're going to know a whole bunch of biblical things. And now that I've loaded all these biblical things upon you, Sherry, good luck. You're not free. Man, you're in bondage at that point. You're going, man, I messed up this and I messed up that and lost my temper about this. And all of a sudden, oh, my goodness. I did. And at the end of the day, you are one whipped puppy. But if the focus is true, if the truth is Jesus Christ and why he came, he came to seek and to save those who are lost. And he came to redeem us with a holy God. Now, if that's the truth, will that truth set you free? Yeah. And so that's where he begins to, to get with them. But it's the same thing that Paul was saying in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 is a great chapter where Paul does a little theological exercise there. And listen to what Paul says. Galatians three twenty three through 26. He, listen for what he says about the law. Okay, And this is somebody, what do you know about Paul before he came to Christ? Did he love the law? Oh, he loved it. He said, I have every law written out on my, on my bookshelves. He said, I have books about the law, and I love it. That was before he came to Christ. So listen to him now post-Christ, post-conversion. He, he understands grace and the whole mission of Christ now. And listen to what he wrote to the Galatians. Now, now what, unless you were following along, what did he mean? He said, the law, it had a purpose. It was kind of a guardian so that we kind of know that there's a, a God out there and there's a way to live. But he said, it was never purpose to save us because none of us could ever do that. He said, Adam and Eve, they blew it. And pretty much from that point on, we we're all born in this, with this nature of sin, what theologians would call the depravity of our sin. We never had a chance after Adam and Eve, born in this depravity. And he said, so the law, it was kind of a guardian until Christ came because Christ was going to give us the answer. He was going to be the truth, and he was going to be the one that would bring us freedom. Okay. Now, look how the Jewish uh, responded to this. These are Jewish leaders. It says that in verse 30 that some of them believed. Then we get to verse 31. Jesus says, okay. You shall know the truth, the truth will set you free. And you might think that they're going to say, okay, we believe. We're going to follow. Look at verse 33. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? What were they banking on there? their their spiritual heritage, that they were Jewish. They said, you know, you just said that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Uh, Mr. Jesus, (laughs) we want you to know we're the descendants of Abraham. (laughs) We've never been in bondage. We don't need to be freed. Now, folks, that is so ridiculous on every level because, number one, who are some of the people that the Jewish people were under bondage? The Assyrians, the Babylonians. What about all those hundreds of years in Egypt? Did they just kind of forget about that? I mean, in the physical realm, they were under bondage. And what was happening right at this very time, at the time of the Gospels, who were they under bondage to? The Romans. Truth in a world of deception. Jesus speaks truth. Here's who you really are. Here's your need. He puts it right out there. He said, you have a need for salvation. You have a, a need for me. And I am that way, the truth, and the life. And I said, we don't, we don't need that kind of truth. But we've been grandfathered in. Can you find one place in the Word of God where it talks about the grandchildren of God? It talks about the children of God. It never talks about the grandchildren of God. And I'm not trying to be cute not trying to be a smart aleck. Just, you, you'll never find that concept that just because your parents were Christians that somehow, you know, just by birth in a Christian home, that you become a Christian. No, it's a personal relationship. And, and yet, in the same way that these Jewish leaders were deceived, hey, we've, we're, we've got a heritage. We've got Abraham as our great, 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 great grandfather. You know people today. I said, well, you know, I, I, I was a Christian from birth. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I, I, I grew up in a... You know, my mom and dad were... I just, you know, I'm, I've been a Christian since the day I took my first breath. Folks, it's not theologically, biblically true. Maybe you're here today and you think, well, you know, I, I know a lot about the Bible and I'm actually a little bit better than a lot of Christians that I know. And, you know, that's how that deception kind of comes. If it's not focused on Christ... And folks, it's easy to be deceived. Jesus gets back to his his original intention here. Look what he says in verse 34. What's the first two words in your translation? I know we have different translations. What's the first two words of Jesus' response back to these people that say, hey, we've been grandfathered in. We know Abraham. We have Abraham as descendants because we're Jewish. We're cool. We've got it. You know, all connected with God. What's the first two words that Jesus uses in your translation? Verily, verily. In the King James, I tell you the truth. truth Very truly, the truth is. Yeah. Do do we miss the point? I mean, he comes back and he says, truly, truly. I mean, I was a little kid. I didn't know what verily, verily meant, but I knew it was pretty important. And when they finally came out with some of the more modern translations, you know, that oh, truly, truly, that's what it means. Jesus speaks truth. They respond and say, no, we've never been in bondage. This freedom that you're talking about, we don't need that. And Jesus comes back and the first two words out of his mouth, truly, truly. This, I, I want to give you truth. See, that's the love, that's the grace of Christ. That even in my rebellion, even in the times I'm going, God, I don't need you. What does he tell me? Truly, truly, Bobby, you, you, you need, I, I'm going to give you truth so that you don't have this deception, so that you don't go on believing the lie. He loves us enough that he's pursuing these people. He's pursuing us with truth in a world of lies. Now, what was this truth? Look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He kind of comes back to the spiritual realm. He said, I could easily point out the Roman soldiers that are all around you right now and that you really are under physical, you know, a physical kind of worldly realm of bondage. But he said, you know, I'm not really talking about the physical world. I'm talking about the spiritual world. So let's get back to that. He said, I- I'm telling you that when you have sin in your life, you're a slave to sin. Well, that would be all of us as far as every one of us have sinned. And then he goes on. Verse 35, 36. The slave does not remain in in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What is he talking about? He said, guys, we're talking about the heart. We're talking about... Your spiritual condition. We're talking about who you are. We're not talking about how good you are compared to your neighbor. He's not talking about how many commandments did you break last week. He said, let's just talk about the heart. He said, you're lost. If you've even committed one sin, what does the Bible say? You've committed them all. I mean, I've never committed the, the sin of adultery. The Bible would say, you know, if you've done this, you've committed the sin that you've broken them all. We're estranged from a holy God. Christ, pursuing these, says, look, you think that you're kind of grandfathered in? You think that you're good enough because you have some knowledge about me that you believe? He said, but this is not salvation belief. Because he said, you're, until you truly understand who I am as the Son of God, come from God to seek and to save those who are lost, he said, until you come to that place of truth and that place of identity, he said, you're still a slave to sin. But he said, if you understand why I came, and you truly acknowledge me as Savior and Lord, you, you put your trust in the work that I've done, then what does he call us there? A child of God, a son, a daughter. P- pretty black and white there, pretty, pretty stark. And what claim does he make in verse 36? So if the son, who's the son? It's capitalized. Jesus. If, if Jesus sets you free, you're going to be free indeed and so let's wrap this up. Folks, that's the good news of the gospel. That's what we're all about, the gospel, and sharing with people the good news. And truth is, uh, this morning, you're one of two places. I've only been here for a couple weeks, but and I love you enough already to tell you the truth. Everybody in here, every single person in here, you're one of two places. You're either, either by Christ's definition there, a slave to sin, our son, our daughter of the living God through Jesus Christ. There's no in-between. These people believed, but it was not salvation. They just believed some things about Christ. But when he really got back to, okay, do you believe that I truly is the Son of God? They're going, no, we want more witnesses. When he said, okay, the other witness is my very Father who sent me, they said, that's not good enough for us. And they want sign after sign. They want all these different things. And they refuse to believe that he truly is the Son of God. This entire Bible, the story of God, really, every bit of it reveals two great life truths the truth about ourselves and the truth about God. From Genesis 1 1 to the very end of Revelation, those are the two truths that we see glaring from every single page. It tells us the truth about ourselves. And the truth about God. Have you ever loved somebody, you cared for somebody enough that it was hard to speak truth in love, but even though it was uncomfortable, you decided, man, I love them enough. They're kind of going the wrong way, so I'm just going to speak truth in love. Have you ever done that before? It was challenging because a lot of times we think, okay, if we really love somebody, we're not going to say anything critical. But what if that critical thing that you are saying is something that truly could put them into more bondage in their life, the most loving thing? We don't have any problem doing that with our kids. Oh, my goodness. Our kids start going to a place of bondage in their life, something that's going to hurt them. What do we do? You get over here right now. We give their whole full name as if they have forgotten, and we get them right there, and we tell them why, because we love them. Are you sitting there going, well, I don't really want to hurt little Johnny's feelings. No. We're going to wear little Johnny out if he doesn't behave because we're going to, we love you so much. The, the end game is what we're worried about. We're not really worried about this temporary time that you feel like, you know, all of a sudden this truth is going to kind of invade where you are. If Johnny is thinking wrong as a parent, what do we do? I mean, we do it graciously, hopefully, and we do it lovingly, hopefully, but we speak truth to him. And, and, folks, that's what we see in the Word today. I mean, look how easy it was for those Jewish leaders. The minute they, they were confronted with the truth of who Christ really was, to resort to their own form of truth. We've never been in bondage. We've never been enslaved. And I can imagine that there's some people here today that, that you know, I'm not as bad as some people that I know that profess to be Christians. In fact, I, you know, Pastor Bob, I, I know some pastors, and I know I'm better than some of those guys. Folks, if you have not put your faith in Christ, in Christ alone, not in your goodness, not in your ability to do the commandments, not all this, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, in Christ alone, then you're in that first category. You believe, you have some belief, but it's not salvation belief. Here's the good news of the gospel. This very day, this very day you can sit there and say, you know, man, you mean it's all about Christ? Not my own goodness, but, but what he did? Yes. And you put your faith and your trust in that, this very day, you don't become a grandchild of God, you become a very child of God by the grace and the mercy of what he has done, accomplished. But folks, as we close, this is a double-edged sword. I would imagine many here today are believers, true believers. You put your faith and trust in Christ. What part of this can be a lie that we believe. Where's the deception to the believer? Have you ever prayed for forgiveness more than one time for the same sin? I mean, you do this sin, and then you go in and you pray forgiveness. I mean, it's heartfelt forgiveness. I mean, maybe you even come to the altar and you just gotta forgive me. But the next day, even though you haven't committed that sin again, you know, you're praying for forgiveness again. Have you ever done that before? Do you know, biblically, that's just all junked up? <laughs> you know, that's just wrong. Because when we come and we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this deception, it can go on in the life of an unbeliever saying, well, I'm good enough. I'm as good as anybody up there at the church. But it also can happen in the life of the believer that you put your trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone. And and yet, sometimes Satan reminds you, we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come, He's a liar. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy. And and he begins to whisper those things. And folks, that's when we come back and we say, no, if the Son has set me free, then I am free indeed. Can we put that next slide up? Uh, Go on to that that last picture. There we go. I I would think that there's some people that, even though you've put your faith and trust in Christ, um, Paul said it this way. He said, don't become a slave again to sin. Well, how can that happen? If we truly have been forgiven of every sin, how do we become a slave again to sin? In our mind, in our heart, in our walk. All of a sudden, the accuser of the brethren, that's one of the words, descriptions of Satan in the Bible, he says, man, you're lowlife, man. Who would have treated their wife like that? Who would have treated their husband like that? And all of a sudden, we have this condemnation. And all of a sudden, we're in that shackles. Now, folks, God will convict us of sin so that we can come to that place of repentance. And But but he's paid for those sins. We are redeemed. Thank God redeemed. And so as we go into a time of invitation this morning, realize you're in one of two places this morning. You're as, as and this isn't my words, this is the words of Christ, a slave to sin that is, that is still you know, maybe you have some knowledge of Christ, but you haven't put your full faith and trust in the work of Christ. Or you are the redeemed and yet realize that you can still be susceptible to the lies of Satan. And that's where we just come back and we just claim, no, Christ has paid for this. I am cleansed of this and I'm going to live in the victory over this because of what he's done. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning and Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us truth. And, Father, we know that uh, that that truth really isn't just the words of the Bible. It is that. But, Father, it is personified in Christ, Christ alone, that he truly was the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Father, today we pray that we would not be like those Jewish people that that are described in verse 30 as believers, and and yet we find that they really don't have an actual heart belief in Christ. Father, there may be some here this morning that have kind of a head belief. They don't disbelieve in your son. And yet, Father, I pray that there's been that time that, that you've just shown them by your mercy and grace that they can cast all of their sin, all of their worries, all of their trouble unto Christ and Christ alone. And that his death was sufficient for every sin. Father, I pray for the believer today. Father, I believe that there are some believers It's so easy to get into bondage, to be deceived by the evil one. And, Father, maybe even this week there's some people that, Father, you know that they are yours. Their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and yet they have doubted either their salvation, they have doubted their walk with you because of some sin. Father, will you show them the cross? Father, will you just let them run to the cross this morning and embrace your goodness and your grace? In the finished work of Christ. Open this altar, Father, so that we can respond to you as we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online